you go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, Galatians 2? Because I'll, I'll, we'll be reading starting in verse 11 through 16 in Galatians 2. We've begun reading Galatians this last week in our Fellowship of the Spirit Sword reading plan. And this morning I'll be preaching from a really interesting passage in chapter 2. So follow along with me as I read uh, verses 11 through 16. <clears throat> but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So this is a really unique and striking passage that I think warrants our attention. I actually think it's meant to arrest our attention in a special way. If we really grasp what is happening, it's dramatic and intriguing. And if there's one thing I know about our culture, it's that you all love drama and intrigue. And so this text is right up our alley. And here we see, the, we see an apostle getting in the face of another apostle. And those are his words. Paul says he confronted Peter to his face. These are the men appointed by the risen Lord Jesus himself to lead his fledgling church. These are the men who that early church devoted themselves to their teaching who were inspired by the Spirit to write infallible Scripture. And here we see the two greatest among them clash. And it may make us a bit uncomfortable. To bring it home a little bit, I could not imagine standing up here and telling you all about a time I confronted Pastor Tim to his face about how he blatantly disregarded the gospel. <laughs> not that I ever have, but even if I had... To stand before you all and rehearse the details of that event seems pretty unthinkable to me. It's even making me anxious just to talk about the hypothetical situation. So why did Paul bring up this interaction? There's a few options as I see it, and some of them upon reverent reflection are not really options at all. Like, did he bring up this, conf this confrontation to, uh, to make Peter look bad? Trying to shame him? Did he bring it up to make himself look like the greater apostle? Did he bring it up just because he's a gossip? Do you see what I mean by reverent reflection, excluding some of these options? So I think it's safe to exclude these reasons, but what does that leave us with? Because it obviously is quite a juicy and dramatic piece of hot gossip here. And he could have made his point in other ways. In fact, he does throughout this letter. So why does he do it like this? In a way that honestly makes us who revere the apostles' calling and ministry feel a little uncomfortable. 
Well, one thing this story does in a way that no other example or teaching could do is it reveals how extremely significant this issue is. For one apostle to boldly confront another apostle to his face and for him to then take that encounter and make it public even to others, this must be something of enough importance that it warrants such extreme treatment. Because we know Paul respects Peter and the other apostles. Even, he, he respects their apostleship, even seeking out their recognition of his own apostleship. So this is not arrogance or disrespect. This isn't flippancy either, like he just didn't realize how heavy and dramatic this example is. No, he knew what he was doing. And for him to do something like this meant that he was addressing something that needed such a drastic step. He needed to make sure they took this as seriously as he does. And we'll get around to how exactly Peter was living out of step with the gospel, which is what Paul says about his actions. And we'll learn from this what it means to live in step with the gospel. But I'm going to take the scenic route to get there. I'm just warning you. Uh, I wanted, what I want to do for like the next like eight to ten minutes is I want to take you through a recent journey of discovery that I've been on, take you through some things that I've been learning, and a hypothesis I've de- developed based on that. So I've got to lay some groundwork to help you understand what I'm thinking. And then at the end of this little journey, I will apply it to your life in a way that will actually affect how you think and live. So stick with me, okay? So let me start with some historical theological background here. One of the church fathers named Tertullian is credited with a vivid statement that helps us get our footing. He said, Jesus, as Christ, uh, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. And so what are those errors that Tertullian's talking about? What are the two errors on either side of justification? Well, to put it uh, maybe less religious terms, you might say moralism on the right, on one side and license on the other. Or the more theological way of putting it is legalism on one side or antinomianism on the other. And now we're probably more familiar with the one side, right? Moralism, legalism. But you may not be familiar with that term antinomian. But what I, I want you to know it so I can talk about it and reference it a bit. Antinomianism is essentially anti-law. You could honestly call it anti-legalism. It's used to refer to a kind of religion or philosophy that rejects the rules, rejects the dominion of, of the law that, of, of, of God over us. It's, like I said, it's a philosophical version might be relativism. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. And practically, it looks like license or hedonism. But in recent times, through what I've been learning and thinking about, I've come to question that dichotomy of those two opposing sides is antinomianism really what's on the other side of legalism? Is it really the opposite, or the, the other side of the other error? Because even though I know people say antinomian things and they think relativistic thoughts, I'm not convinced anybody is actually antinomian. I don't think antinomianism actually exists. Because antinomian, especially, it means essentially no law. Or to put it plainly, a rejection of the rules. Or specifically, as it applies to Christianity and justification, like Tertullian was talking about, legalism, the more familiar side, is saying what? It's saying that you obey the law, obey the rules, and that contributes to your righteousness before God. That's legalism. That's an error. And so then the opposite is said to be antinomian, which is a rejection of legalism, to the degree that says this, since we don't need to follow God's law to be justified, then we don't need to follow God's law, period. The law is in no way binding on Christians who are saved by grace. And so Christians can live however they want. 
But the question I've come to ask is, does anyone actually believe that? There are people who clearly reject the great majority of God's laws, but does anyone reject all law? Now, you may be thinking of a whole litany of examples in your head to refute me. You may be thinking of several people right now who think that they can live however they want. You may be thinking of Christians who use God's forgiveness as license to, uh, as like a safety net for disobeying what is clearly God's will. And you're right. That's what theologians of the past have called antinomians. But what I'm saying is that those people don't reject all law, just most of it. Adulterers may excuse their adultery because of their feelings, but they won't excuse a thief who just really wanted their car. And even a murderer will hate an arrogant braggart, a proud man, a man whose heart is inflated with pride. He may even kill him. Sure, the people we call antinomians seem to reject the law, but they still keep parts of it, no matter how small those parts are. And the key thing to notice is that they think those parts ought to be kept by others too. No matter where you look, even among the most hedonistic people in the world, they still have rules. They still have some ties to law. And the reason I've dived into this is that I find it incredibly enlightening for our modern culture. The people who reject God's laws in so many different spheres of life actually still cling to certain values and rules that find their footing in God himself. When I first started thinking about this, I thought, okay, so if the difference isn't rules versus no rules, maybe it's more rules versus less rules. Legalists keep a lot of rules and antinomians keep just a few rules. But that's not actually true either, because what I've noticed is that, sure, the legalist or the moralist keeps more rules from God and tradition, while the antinomian keeps far less of those rules. But then that void that they've created, they fill that up with rules of their own or for rules from whoever they think are important or cool. And this is true for unreligious people and religious people. I've noticed this in two different books I've read recently. First is called The Air We Breathe. And the other is called, a bio, it was a biography by J. I. Pa of J.I. Packer. So the first book, The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. He's addressing how the core values of modern secular culture, godless culture, actually are inherited from Christ. Even though they take the kernel of the truth and then twist it into alternative directions. So of course, irreligious people, they reject all kinds of things God says. But they still are legalists in their own way. You'll see this in just a second. They, they retain these core values and they twist them in different directions. Like equality, for example. That is a value inherited from Christ that wasn't upheld in the world before him. But it is because of Jesus. We've inherited this. And now equality is still a value, but it, it's separated from Christ and it becomes this radical individualism. So we don't talk about responsibilities to others. We talk about rights, and in particular, my rights. Another example is compassion a value inherited from Christ that wasn't upheld in the world before him to have compassion on the lowly. And, and we take that value of compassion, which is supposed to give us great hearts, and it gives us thin skin because we gain cultural capital by how much of a victim we have been. And those who reject the law of God, we see them become just as legalistic as ever, maybe more so because the, the culture cancels anyone who transgresses their law. And because Christianity, has, it, the culture has kept Christianity's sense of sin, but has forgotten about salvation. So even secular antinomians are secret legalists, but so are religious ones. 
And this is what I learned from J.I. Packer's biography. J.I. Packer confronted strains of spirituality within Christianity that seemed on the surface to oppose legalism and works righteousness. But as he delved deeper into them, they were actually making faith into a work. Saying you must believe harder, fuller, deeper. You've got to have greater faith. And this is why you haven't experienced such and such a blessing. And Packer, even early in his life, became involved with some of these Christians in a quiet, what's called a quietist movement, the kind that says, let go and let God about everything. And this kind of like higher life movement says you access greater levels of, of spirituality through greater faith. And he essentially came to see that they were not as ruleless as they let on. They just had different rules, somehow making faith into a work for your righteousness. Instead of saying you work harder for your righteousness, he said you believe harder for your righteousness. Quietist spirituality says any initiatives on our part are the energy of the flesh, and so we should always be seeking the annihilation of ourselves so that the divine life may flow freely through us. But what Packer came to realize is that these people are always trying to not try. You've got to try harder at not trying. You're not letting go of yourself enough. In other words, it's not abandoning law-keeping. It's just a different set of laws. And this changes this dichotomy a bit. It's not legalism versus anti-legalism. It's overt legalism versus secret legalism. Legalism that's honest about being legalism on one side, and legalism that's wearing a disguise as something else on the other side. Now, this is where this is all leading. Here's the application to your life, I promise you, on the other side of this journey. If I'm right, the antinomianism doesn't really exist. It changes the question a little bit. The question is not rules versus no rules. The question is, are the rules that govern your life derived from the gospel? And are they obeyed because of the gospel? Are the rules that govern your life derived from the gospel? And are they obeyed because of the gospel? And that's what I see in this text. This is the kind of thinking that Paul has in his mind when he confronts Peter. Because look at what he says in verse 14. The way he says it is so crucial. He says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So he notices what they're doing is wrong, but how? How does he notice what they're doing is wrong? Why is it wrong? Because it's not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, the gospel becomes for us a way of life a way of conducting ourselves in the world. It, it, it becomes a lens through which we see the world. It becomes a fountain out of which certain virtues and values spring out of us. It is a guidepost, a path. It is what shapes our behavior and our relationships. And this is how Paul thought about things. And this means that the gospel is a deeper well than many of us have thought. It's not just the entry point. It's the whole point. And so we say again, the question is, are the rules that govern your life derived from the gospel of Jesus Christ? And are they obeyed because of the gospel? But in order to know and answer these questions, you've got to know the gospel. And you've got to get it right. And so what is the gospel? The gospel is in essence the message about who Christ is and what he has done. But in order to understand that message and its implications, you have to also understand sin as well. That we were foolish. 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the gospel. To put it another way, the gospel is the amazing truth that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people through Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both of these are taken from the book of Titus. And I've long loved these articulations of the gospel. They are actually very close to each other in the text. And I love how one emphasizes our salvation is not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And the other says that we are saved in order that Christ might purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says something else that is important in light of the discussion we've just had. I think I ought to mention. He says that Christ redeems us from all lawlessness. And lawlessness might jump out of you in light of the things I've just said. That might sound a lot like anti-law. One might call it antinomianism, which is the very thing you just said doesn't exist, Jay. And you're very observant, right? But notice that Paul says redeems us from lawlessness. He includes himself. And we know for a fact that if anyone was a legalist before he was saved, it's Paul. So whatever Paul means by lawlessness, it also applies to what we call legalists. I think what Paul means by lawlessness is is expounded in Romans 8, where he says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is lawlessness. Paul says anyone apart from the Spirit of God cannot truly submit to God's law. So even legalists are not truly submitting to God's law. How can that be? It's because the law is and has always been much more profound and much deeper than what mere human will can accomplish. Jesus made this clear in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you have heard it said in the law not to murder, right? Well, I tell you that the command to murder includes indulging in anger toward another person. When you do that, you actually transgress the command not to murder. You just do it in the unseen realm of your heart. Except that realm is not actually unseen. You see it, and God sees it. And the same is true with adultery, and lust, and lying, and stealing, and so on. But the law, the best the law can do is make you a whitewashed tomb. But it would not be wrong to call a collection of exceptionally beautiful tombs a graveyard. Legalists are just as lawless in this sense. And Jesus has redeemed us from 
this lawlessness. According to Paul, this is a key aspect of the good news. He has made us his own that we might become a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. But notice the order of that. This is what's so distinct about the gospel. He has made us his own for us to be zealous for good works. Not what we intuitively think, that we are zealous for good works so that we can become his own. These two ways of thinking are radically different. And if you mix them up, if you mix up the order, you lose the gospel. First, we are made his own so that we may become zealous for good works. Because the kind of works he sees as good are gospel works. So I want you, I also want you to see that if you, even if you have it in that right order, but you lose that half of it. You got the gospel of its power. We are told that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Are you zealous for good works? And the way Paul sees good works are those that are derived from the truth of the gospel itself and obeyed because of the gospel. So let's look at Peter as a case study in our text in Galatians. So you know a bit more about the context here because we've just read through Acts. And so you know that Antioch is the first non-Jewish hub of the burgeoning early church. And that was uh, kind of the Apostle Paul's home base was Antioch. And we saw last week that when Jesus appeared to Paul to convert him from a church persecutor to a church planter, he commissioned him as an apostle to who? to the Gentiles, and so meaning the non-Jewish world. And a kind of division of labor was established. Paul recounts this in, in uh, this same chapter of Galatians too. So if you look back just a little earlier, starting in verse 7, he says, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So when he's talking in that passage about the circumcised and uncircumcised, he's talking about Jews and non-Jews. Peter was the lead apostle to the Jews and Paul, the lead apostle to the non-Jews, which we usually call Gentiles. And so in this text that we're looking at, it says that Peter came where? To Antioch. And so it's essentially a friendly visit from the apostle to the Jews coming to the apostle to the Gentiles home turf and this majority Gentile congregation. And we get a glimpse into some of the messy situations that arose as these two kinds of people started trying to come together under the same Lord. Even some of the leaders of this movement made some mistakes and strayed from what ought to be clear implications of the gospel. So what did that look like? I guess I should say, I just note there, when it says Cephas, that is the same person as Peter. Uh, just another name he went by. So Cephas or Peter comes to Antioch, and in verse 12 it says, Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And so, in the, what, you see what's happening here. Peter 
is in Antioch having a great time fellowshipping with these new Gentiles, like they're his brothers and sisters in Christ, which they are. But then some people come from James, meaning Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. He, James was like a lead pastor there. Some Jewish Christians come into town and Peter sees them and start, starts acting differently. And Paul says he did that because he feared the circumcision party. And remember, back in the story of Acts, how some Jewish Christians early in the church thought that any converts to Christianity have to become circumcised. And that they have to become Jewish, essentially. And they had this whole council about it. And uh, to make it clear that being a Christian did not mean that you had to become observant of every Jewish law and custom. But it meant being called into a new and distinct gospel-shaped way of life. And so this event is probably before that council happened. And this party of people that thought that the people had to become Jewish to become Christian held a lot of sway. And Peter didn't want to get on their bad side. He was playing politics, essentially. And so when they come into town, he stops eating with the Gentiles. Because Jews would have seen that as an unclean act, even though the law didn't forbid it. It was kind of like an extra Jewish tradition rule. And when these people arrive, Peter behaves cowardly and hypocritically. He says, oh, the Gentiles? Yeah, I definitely don't want to eat with them. No, ew. Even though he had just been doing so right before they arrived. And Peter, the influential leader that he is, drags a bunch of people along with him in his hypocrisy and begins to tear a rift in this new church with Jewish Christians over at this supper table and non-Jewish Christians over at this supper table. And so Paul, who is concerned for the integrity of the gospel and the unity of the church, openly opposes Peter and, and boldly opposes him for this. He says that he saw this out as out of step with the truth of the gospel, which is striking. And this is essentially, when you see these, these ways these people were thinking, this is essentially a battle of two different ways of thinking about how to live. The circumcision party saw eating with the Gentiles as out of step with the law. And Paul saw not eating with the Gentiles as out of step with the gospel. How is that out of step with the truth of the gospel? Well, let's hear another of Paul's articulations of the gospel from Ephesians 2. He says to Gentiles, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So the gospel of Jesus Christ means that those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and that he has made us one through reconciling all Christians to the same God through the same cross. The good news of the gospel has clear implications for the oneness of all Christians regardless of religious or racial background. So then, what does this mean for how we live? 
it means we ought to actually live like that is true. And what does it mean to live like that is true? Like you really are one in Christ. Well, the very least it means is you don't treat one another as unclean. You don't regard other Christians as, as less than you in any way. You don't shun them or disregard them. But instead, because of what Christ has done and who he is to you both and what he is doing in you and through you, you actually strive to commune with one another and fellowship and partner and share and love and, and this is a clear implication of the gospel. For a while now, there's been a little bit of a debate in Galatians, about Galatians. It basically goes like this. Is it mainly addressing legalism or tribalism? In other words, is the main problem works righteousness or racism? And there's a few people like me who say we don't really have to choose one or the other because they're both here. Although it seems to me that Peter's sin was less racism and more cowardice because he was happy to associate with the Gentiles. But when the Jews were not happy, who were not happy about it came, he didn't have the backbone to stand up to them. So yeah, there is clearly some race and tribalist issues here. Paul's clear about that. The gospel means unity, the unity of the redeemed humanity under Christ across racial, social, economic, even former religious backgrounds. But also, we can't lose sight of the fact that it wasn't purely racism for these folks, the circumcision party. It was also a skewed vision of righteousness before God in Christ. And this is the hypocrisy that Paul brings up in his little speech to Peter. He says in the second half of verse 14, if you, though a Jew... Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I've seen you, Peter, living like a Gentile. I know how much you love your Christian liberty. I've seen the smile on your face when you hug these formerly unclean Gentiles. I've seen the joy in your face when you eat bacon. But now you are acting in such a way that makes the Gentiles feel like they have to live like Jews, even though you, a Jew, are living like a Gentile. It's hypocrisy. And he follows this up in verse 15 by saying, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order that to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he makes it clear that he's confronting Peter, that, that by confronting Peter, he is attempting to clear up the doctrine of justification by faith. He doesn't want to muddy the waters of our justification. And justification is key to the gospel. So the first way in which Peter's actions were out of alignment with the gospel, just to recap, was not living in truth with the racial, with the radical unity that Jesus' blood purchased for us, even across racial and religious boundary lines. So that's the first way, not living in, in line with the radical unity of Jesus' blood that he bought for us. And this, this is the second way, the second way that his actions were out of line with the gospel is that he confused the clarity of justification by faith, which is a key glorious truth of the gospel, that we have a righteousness before God that is given to us, 
that is not our own, that we did not earn, that we cannot earn. It is Christ's own righteousness. And through faith in him alone, we receive it as a gift. This is what Martin Luther talks about in his wonderful preface to his commentary on, the Gal- on Galatians. If any, anyone every, of any person who's written about justification other than Paul himself, the, Martin Luther is probably the most influential. And so I want you to hear from him a little bit about this. He says, St. Paul in this book goes about diligently to instruct us, to comfort us, to hold us in the perfect knowledge of this most Christian and excellent righteousness. For if the article of justification be lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. For between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of Christ, or between the the active and passive righteousness, there is no middle ground. He then who strays from this Christian righteousness must need fall into the active righteousness. That is to say, when he has lost Christ, he must fall into the confidence of his own works. You see what he said there? This is why Paul saw this as so important. Remember what I said at the beginning that he he would only use this example if it was so of such uh, importance. And like Luther said, if the article of justification is lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. Luther is clear and Paul is, is equally as clear. You must not live like your righteousness before God is your own doing. You must not teach or interact with others in a way that would suggest that their justification before God is altered by their works. In that same preface to Galatians, Luther has a couple wonderful asides where he gives examples of how we preach the doctrine of justification to our own souls. Here's one. He says, Although I am a sinner by the law, as touching the righteousness of the law, yet I despair not. Yet I die not, because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my everlasting and heavenly life. In that righteousness and life, I have no sin, no sting of conscience, no care of death. For where the law accuses me, death reigns over me and at length would devour me. But I have another righteousness and life above this life, which is Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin nor death, but is righteousness and life eternal. This is the amazing doctrine of justification by faith. This is the scandal of grace. And as some have understood this doctrine, and even maybe as you're thinking about it, you might assume that such a doctrine would make us complacent. And that's what some feared when Luther started preaching this. But Luther sees the exact opposite. Let me read you one last paragraph from him. He says, When I have this righteousness reigning in my heart, I descend from heaven as the rain making fruitful the earth. That is to say, I come forth into another kingdom and I do good works how and whenever occasion is offered me. If I'm a minister of the word, I preach, I comfort the brokenhearted, I administer the sacraments. If I'm a householder, I govern my house and my family, I bring up my children in the knowledge and fear of God. If I'm a magistrate, the charge that is given me from above, I diligently execute. If I'm a servant, I do my master's business faithfully. To conclude, whoever is assuredly persuaded that Christ is his righteousness does not only cheerfully and gladly work well in his vocation, but also submits himself through love to the magistrates and to their laws and to all manner of burdens and dangers in this present life because he knows that this is the will of God and that this obedience pleases him.
What Luther is saying and what the Apostle Paul is saying to Peter in the Galatians is live like a person justified through faith. Live like your righteousness comes from Jesus and not from you. And that kind of life is beautiful and refreshing. Or in Luther's words, I love it how he put it, like rain from heaven to nourish the earth. This is a life in step with the gospel. Let's pray. Holy Father, you have given us the grace of your son, his life and righteousness you have counted as ours through our faith. Help us remember this truth and love this truth and live in this truth. You have also joined us together in love with all others who share this faith, who share this righteousness. Shape our souls with your good news. Give us courage and wisdom as we apply it to our lives. Through your spirit and his power. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.